Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. and welcome to episode 349 of the true crime all the time unsolved podcast i'm mike ferguson and with me as always is my partner in true crime mike gibson give me how are you hey i'm doing good how about yourself i'm doing very well having a pretty good week yeah good i'm pretty sure my youngest is coming home from college this weekend i always get excited about that yeah good weekend for you yeah let's go ahead and give our patreon shout outs we had amy may jump out at our highest level amy may thank you wade woodard what's going on wade jessica l hey jessica katrin einard's daughter well thanks einard's daughter joey bales hey joey jane hamlin what's going on jane allison clark there's allison leah montgomery jumped out at our highest level oh that's awesome leah nurse maria there's nurse maria just a girl who loves giraffes jumped out to her highest level. Well, I'm just a guy that loves giraffes. <laughs> and last but not least, Genevieve Plant. Ah, oh, thanks, Genevieve. And then if we go back into the vault, this week we selected Kimberly Manley. Awesome. Thank you, Kimberly. Yeah, we appreciate all the support on Patreon that we get. Gives we have an episode out right now on True Crime All the Time where we're talking about Rod Matthews and you know, we're headed to Massachusetts. Rod was 14 years old, killed another 14 year old. Yeah. And there's just a lot to this one. You know, it's the reasoning behind it. It's the planning. There's talk of mental health issues, the trial. There's just a lot going on. It's a good case. All right, buddy. Are you ready to get into this episode of true crime all the time unsolved? I am ready. We're talking about the unsolved murder of Mallory. Manning. Mallory Manning was a 27-year-old sex worker who was murdered in Christchurch, New Zealand in December 2008. A member of the mongrel mob gang was arrested and convicted of her murder, but the charge was later dismissed. Mallory's case is one of the most high-profile unsolved murders in New Zealand. Natai Lynette Manning, who went by the name Mallory, was born in Nelson, New Zealand, on February 6, 1981, Mallory and her siblings, Rob and Jasmine, had a difficult childhood. Their father left the family 
and didn't have much contact with them. Rob Manning told the New Zealand Herald, we were not brought up very well. The stepfather at the time, not the stepfather now, was really horrible. That probably didn't help the whole course of life's tracks. Oh, I think he's right. You know, when you have a bad childhood, a bad stepfather. Your father, you know, essentially abandons you. You know, that's always tough for me because I just don't understand it. I love being a father. Right. So much. It's, it's one of the greatest things that, you know, I've ever experienced in life. I can't imagine you hear those stories about some guy who goes out for scratchers and then never comes back. Yeah. Or goes out for cigarettes and never comes back. I could never do that. I could never just uh, be away from my kids, let alone abandon them and, and never really have contact with them. But unfortunately there's people out there that do that. There, there are. And then, you know, let's say your mom remarries someone who at first she thinks is a, a good guy. Yeah. But he turns out not to be a good guy. And apparently their first stepfather was horrible to them. So when you say that all these events set you on a track in life, well, obviously they do. Oh, yeah. yeah. They have a big time effect. Now, does it mean that everybody who goes through this is, you know, going to have a bad adult life? No. It doesn't mean that, but it can't help you. (laughs) No, it definitely makes it challenging. Yes. The siblings had a close relationship, and Mallory often stood up for them in school. Rob said, that unity of all three of us going through the same stuff made us very close. And that I can see as well. You know, you, you talk about, and this isn't a great comparison, but you talk about guys who went through war together, adversity. And became very, very close, like lifelong friends. Yeah. Because of of what they shared. You could see this with with siblings as well. A lot of siblings are close anyway. But I think to go through some really bad experiences together. It's a different type of bond. It, yeah. I think there there is a different type of bond there. Maybe it, get, it can get even stronger because of it. Mallory left school at age 14 and entered the foster care system, she started using drugs around this time. She started doing sex work at the age of 15. So Rob said it didn't help, right? The whole course of their life, it obviously didn't help Mallory. I mean, by the age of 14, she was going through some rough stuff. Yeah. In 1999, when she was 18 years old, Mallory was sentenced to 18 months in jail for stabbing a shop employee with a blood-filled syringe during a robbery. I don't think I've ever even heard of that. Sounds dangerous. Potentially very dangerous. Whose blood is it? What's in that blood? I mean, you would think you're not going to kill somebody by stabbing them with a a syringe. It's not going to feel good. Right. But you're probably not going to kill them. But could there potentially be something in that blood that would kill them? Absolutely. The other thing that is really jumping out at me is you and I have done so many unsolved cases. And oftentimes we're talking about the victims in such glowing terms, almost all the time. Here we're not. 
And we're talking about this girl had a rough upbringing. And she started getting in trouble at a, a pretty early age. After she got out of prison, she continued sex work, which is legal in New Zealand. She also continued using drugs. Mallory's older sister, Jasmine, died of suicide in July 2008. She was only 29 years old. Jasmine was in witness protection at the time of her death and had lost contact with her siblings. The New Zealand Herald reported that Jasmine ran in similar circles as Mallory. So, I mean, it sounds like Jasmine, Mallory, both had difficult adult lives to pair with their difficult childhood. Yes. I mean, she was in witness protection for what we don't know, but if Mallory is running in some rough circles and it's said that Jasmine is running in the same circles, okay, I think you can kind of put some of it together. Mallory was profoundly affected by the loss of her sister per the New Zealand Herald. She decided that she was going to change her life, telling her brother, Rob, I don't want to end up like that. And I'll tell you what, sometimes that's exactly what it takes. Seeing someone, you know, doing the same thing that you're doing end up dying or, you know, something really bad happening to them. I've experienced it where, you know, even at my age, seeing people that are close to me in age die. Yeah. Makes you reevaluate. It does. You know, maybe I need to start eating better. Maybe I need to, you know, start a, a fitness regimen. I don't, but I think about that type of stuff all the time. Yeah. Mallory joined a methadone program, looked into studying art, and moved in with her mother. Mallory's long-term romantic partner, Kent Gorey, told the police that they started planning to have a baby and were going to straighten their lives up. Mallory left home to perform sex work. On the night of December 18th, 2008, she wanted to earn money to buy Christmas gifts for her family. According to the New Zealand Herald, it was supposed to be her last night doing sex work. So this obviously was going to be part of her change, what they called straightening up their lives, even though it was it's not illegal in New Zealand, but obviously she had made the decision. Yeah, it's her new beginning. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do something else. She left home at 9.30 p.m. to go to work on a street corner in Christchurch, New Zealand. Witnesses saw her on the corner of Peterborough and Manchester Streets until 10.30 p.m. She was seen in a dark Ford Falcon at one point. Mallory used her cell phone to make a call at 10.42 p.m. and sent her last text to a client at 10.43 p.m. No one heard from her after this. And you and I have talked about sex work a lot over the years. Now, while it's legal in New Zealand, to my way of thinking, it's not going to change some of the dangers. No, I think it's going to be just as dangerous. Yeah, you're still getting into cars with people you don't know. There's no way to know their intentions. You might be driven to some location. Right where no one else is around, it's it's dangerous stuff. Yeah, it's not like they're coming to your office, being buzzed in, taken back to a room where you have security and, you know, you do what you got to do and then they, you know, they pay and they leave. 
It's not like that. Well, maybe they do have some of that in New Zealand. I don't know. But, but this is not what she was doing. Right. Obviously, right. the way that we're describing uh, what Mallory was doing was going to be not all that safe. Right. Mallory's body was found just after dawn on December 19th. A kayaker found her floating in the Avon River. She was found partially nude and suffered extensive injuries. She had been raped, strangled, stabbed in the chest several times, and beaten in the head and legs with a piece of reinforced steel. This is brutal. Yeah. A very, very brutal murder. Robbery was discounted as a motive because a bag with the money she earned that night was on her shoulder when her body was found. And I think that's an important clue in any unsolved case. When money is left at the crime scene or, you know, at the spot where the body is found, it tells you something. Now, it could be that the perpetrator was in such a hurry to get out of there that they didn't want to take the time to search through the bag, or it could mean that they didn't care about the money. Yeah, that wasn't the reason for the murder. The police first looked into her clients. They wanted to know the last person to pick her up, and they searched a parking lot where she often met clients. She went to this spot as late as 9.30 p.m. on the night she was killed. And you can understand why they would want to do that, right? A lot of cases we talk about the significant other being looked at. Yeah. And I'm sure that person would be looked at here as well. But when you have someone doing the job that, that Mallory is doing, you are going to want to look at those clients. Yeah. I think you're going to want to talk to the last person that she was with and, and, and hopefully maybe some of the previous ones too, because maybe they got a little upset with her or especially anyone that night. Yeah. In January, 2009, it was announced that the police were using Mallory's client book to track down her former associates it contained the names and numbers of 40 people. The police announced they were looking for a man seen in a blue four-wheel drive vehicle. On the night of the murder, one sex worker said the man approached her at 10.35 p.m. and asked what her prices were. Another sex worker told the police she was approached on January 2nd by a man who wanted to talk about Mallory's death. On January 22nd, it was reported that the police were seeking a loud four-wheel drive vehicle. Two pedestrians saw the vehicle driving slowly along the river after they heard a big splash. Oh, that's interesting. What's that big splash? Her body going into it? I mean, I think you could make that assumption. The vehicle was possibly a dark green or blue Nissan Safari or Mitsubishi Pajero. It had tinted windows, shiny rims, and a silver strip around the windows. Gibbs, you ever wonder why in other countries they have different names for models of cars? Marketing, man. It's all marketing. Yeah, I never quite understood it. I don't know if the cars are completely different than what we have here in the U.S., or it's the same basic model, but they use a different name. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, maybe the name here means something, but in another country, it could be offensive. Yeah, yeah, that could be as well. I've never heard of a Nissan Safari or a Mitsubishi Pajero no. here in, in the U.S. In October 2009, a man who previously lived with Mallory 
told three news that the police asked him if he could recognize a voice from an anonymous tip phone call. He identified that voice as belonging to a member of the city's criminal underworld. Things always get interesting when you bring in the criminal underworld. Just ask Batman. Well, the one thing I will say is that it seems as though this is a possibility in a lot of unsolved episodes, right? Criminal underworld, mafia, mob, criminal enterprise, whatever you want to call it. Right. The one thing that it seems to do is off is open up a ton of different possibilities. The unidentified man said, I definitely 100% recognize the person. And as I know, I'm the only person that has identified that person on that tape. I've given the police that information and hopefully that will lead to Mallory's killer or killers. Do you think you would be good at recognizing a voice on tape? If I heard it a lot, I think I could. I mean, people have recognized our voices in hotels and in places like that, especially like at CrimeCon. Yeah, I think if I've heard it a lot, I could. If I just heard it once or twice, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if it was, if it was my wife or my one of my daughters, I would know if it yeah. was you or my friends. But if it was someone that I knew only casually, yeah, I think it, would, it might be a little tough. I unless don't know. It's, unless it's like unique. You yeah, know? that's true. I'm really good with faces. I don't know how good I would be with voices that I only heard like once you ever see in the movies where they put somebody in a lineup, right? Or they have a lineup, but it's really to hear them say something. So they step up and they say a very specific phrase. Oh, yeah. Put your hands up. Yeah. There's a great scene in unusual suspects, which is a movie that I love where they all have to step up and, and say the same phrase and they're kind of, laughing or they're saying it in a strange way right not saying it in the way that the detectives would want you to say right in december 2010 two years after mellory was murdered the christchurch police announced that they believed they knew where mellory was killed detective inspector greg williams head of the investigation said examinations of her clothes found a significant amount of seeds that indicated she had been attacked in an open area on something like wasteland. Now, I don't know exactly what is meant by seeds. I was kind of thinking like those, what we would call like a burr. Yeah. I think they are technically seeds, but those ones that like stick to your clothing or your shoelaces or, or something like that, maybe. That sounds reasonable. It does. Especially if it's in the wasteland. Detective Inspector Williams said, he believed Mallory was picked up around 10.40 p.m. and entered the river just before 11. He said, per one news, our timing suggests that she and her attackers would have arrived there just before 10.50 p.m. This implies they had previous knowledge of the existence and whereabouts of this site. So what I take from that is that, number one, not a lot of time went by. Right between the time she was picked up and the time she was killed. And then I think because of that short period of time, their thinking is that they must have already had or known about this site, right? They didn't spend time driving around trying to find the perfect place. Yes. 
they knew where they were going to go. So they, they must have knowledge of it or have had knowledge of it. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash unsolved, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash unsolved to take your retail business to the next level today shopify.com slash unsolved you know that's the sound of another sale on your online shopify store but did you know shopify powers selling in person too that's right shopify is the sound of selling everywhere online in store on social media and beyond track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true crime. The police identified numerous potential crime scenes. One of the sites was a large section at 25 Galbraith Avenue, which is close to where Mallory's body was found. This site had already been searched twice and multiple items of interest and samples were taken and examined. At the time of the murder, a warehouse on the property was being used as what was termed the gang pad of the Eteroa mongrel mob in Christchurch. The gang used the warehouse until February or March of 2009. It was their hangout. Yes. I'm assuming that's what they meant by gang pad. The mongrel mob, also called the mighty mongrel mob, is an organized street gang and prison gang in New Zealand. The gang has over 30 chapters throughout the country, as well as chapters in Australia and Canada. It is the largest gang in New Zealand. I've never heard of the gang. I haven't either, but it does sound a lot like um, maybe a, a big-time motorcycle gang. You know, I'm I'm thinking of like the hell's angels yeah. or something like that who have maybe a lot of chapters spread, you know, all over the country or, I mean, 30 chapters is a lot. It is. And then extending into, you know, a couple of other countries, you know, the gang was founded by youth in the 1960s. The name reportedly originated from a judge who called a group of young men mongrels, you bunch of mongrels. Many gang members ride motorcycles and wear leather jackets with red and white patches. So I don't know that it's technically a a motorcycle gang, but 
I guess a lot of the gang members do ride motorcycles. And maybe they're perceived that way. The gang is predominantly composed of Mori people. Some members use Nazi symbols, have Nazi tattoos, and even do Nazi salutes. One member who spoke to Vice said that a swastika is a hated symbol, and the gang wanted to use symbols that would insult people. It's not that they're pro-Nazi, rather they are anti-society and want to offend the crown. Well, that's one way to do it. Yeah. If you want to insult a lot of people, a swastika is a good way to do it. It's interesting how they say the crown. It's like they're trying to take it to the hierarchy. On September 29, 2011, the police revealed they had a DNA profile from a semen sample taken from Mallory's body. The sample had no match, but investigators ruled out her partner and two clients from the night of the murder. They obtained the DNA profile within days of the murder, but they waited almost three years to inform the public. Well, I'm sure they had their reasons. Yeah, we don't always know what those reasons are, but we speculate on them in a number of cases. Could it be that you know they didn't want to scare someone off? My thought is, if the person who raped Mallory that night left that semen right and then all of a sudden very quickly found out that all right the police have dna from it they would be a lot more worried than than maybe they were before they obtained that knowledge and maybe try to flee yes but after three years okay obviously they haven't figured out who it is they're taking it to the public Forensic examinations suggested Mallory was sexually attacked, but the DNA couldn't be ruled out as that of an unknown client. Months later, the press announced a major development in the case. On March 29, 2012, 21-year-old Maha Fawcett was arrested and appeared in court to hear charges of kidnapping and murder. Detective Inspector Greg Williams said, Fawcett was not linked to the case by the semen sample. The police alleged he was linked to the address where Mallory was believed to have been killed. Investigators believed multiple people were involved in the kidnapping and murder. All right, so we're getting some movement here. We're getting movement, but I'm struggling to figure out how strong it is. Okay, he's linked to this gang pad. And he was a member of the mongrel mob gang. He was known as Muck Dog. But he's not linked to the semen sample. He's only linked to the address. Where they think she was murdered. Yeah, it doesn't seem all that solid yet, right? But a starting point. Well, a starting point, but they've arrested the guy. (laughs) So normally, at least in my eyes, you would think you would need more to make an arrest. Maybe they had it. Maybe they just didn't release it at this point. It's also New Zealand, so maybe it works a little bit different than here. Yes, that's true. We don't know We don't know everything about the justice system here in the U.S. We certainly don't know everything about uh, the justice system in, in other countries. I guess my only point was it seemed pretty flimsy, what we know so far. According to the New Zealand Herald, the mob muscled in to the red light district of Christchurch during the months when Mallory decided to stop doing sex work, 
They demanded a $20 tax from sex workers for every transaction. Fawcett's job was to watch the sex workers on Manchester Street and enforce the gang tax. Okay, so we get a little more information. Yeah. It's not information that is directly tying him to her murder, but we're getting some more. It sounds like he was an enforcer. And we know that that night she was on Manchester Street. Mallory's brother, Rob Manning, told the New Zealand Herald that she would not have been willing to give up the money she earned. He said she was trying to get off the streets. She hadn't worked for ages, but that night she went to the place where she used to work and they were all like, who are you? It was all different. She was feisty, didn't put up with too much shit from people. Not that that's always a good thing. She had done some stuff in her life. But she wasn't born like that. She was just a normal kid, but grew up without perhaps the best start in life. She made her own decisions and she decided to do what she did. And unfortunately, she paid the ultimate price. What she did was a risky job. So he's echoing something that we said many, many times. Yeah. You know, sex work is a risky job. The one thing that I'm really taking away from Rob's statement is that she hadn't worked in a while. So, you know, during these months where she'd not been working or not been doing that job, at least, you know, had the gang come in, put in this $20 tax. And then all of a sudden that night she goes out knowing nothing about it. Right. And and here they come wanting to collect the, her hard earned money. And could that have, been the impetus for her murder. Maha Fawcett went to trial on February 10th, 2014. Prosecutors argued that Fawcett took part in or was party to Mallory's murder in order to earn his gang patch. They emphasized that Fawcett was not the only person involved and that the DNA sample could be the key to identifying the other perpetrators. Investigators believed members of the mongrel mob picked Mallory up while she was working on December 8th, 18th, 2008. They took her to their pad on Galbraith Avenue in Christchurch and attacked her because of an alleged drug debt. So prosecutors aren't saying anything about this tax angle. They're saying this was all over some type of drug debt and also a way for this Fawcett guy to earn his patch. Yeah. According to a confession by Fawcett, gang members played loud music while they raped her, beat her, and stabbed her. After she was dead, they stood over her body, shouted a Nazi salute, and barked like dogs. Some gang members, including Maha Fawcett, dumped her body in the river. So we have a confession by this guy, Maha Fawcett, and the details are extremely graphic. Yeah, it's so it's very disturbing. And then even after she was dead, you know, shouting, the Nazi salutes, barking like dogs, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And then eventually he said they dumped her body in the river. Fawcett feared the gang would turn him in to the police or kill him because They thought he would snitch, so he fled the city. You know what you don't want to be to the gang? A snitch. A snitch. 
because he ended up in a ditch. Fawcett represented himself with assistance from an amicus cure or a friend of the court who was an attorney named Craig Ruan. Never really good when you represent yourself, even if you have a little bit of assistance. Probably best to just have an attorney do it for you. Oh, I, I think so. Now, I don't know over there what representing yourself actually means with assistance of an attorney. But a lot of the cases we talk about here in the U.S., sometimes people who represent themselves, the judge makes them take uh, somebody who sits there with them, but they don't listen to them anyway. No. So, I mean, what good is it? But it's one thing to represent yourself during like a traffic ticket or, you know, a, a minor infraction. But this is murder. This is rape, torture, murder. Yeah, I think the legal complexities in a case like this are so far and above something like a, you called it a minor infraction or a traffic ticket or, or something like that. There's just so much to it. You're not going to know any of it. Number one, you're probably not that smart. And number two, you haven't gone to school for it. Exactly. Even the ones that went to school for it sometimes aren't the best people to represent you. It's like any profession. There are good doctors. There are not. There are some not great doctors. Yes. <laughs> there are very good attorneys. There are some that are not that great. That's right. You know, they barely pass the bar, squeak through law school, and they're an attorney. But you could say the same thing about every profession. Absolutely. Fawcett said in court per the New Zealand Herald, I'm here charged for murder for what I've said to police. I've made these false confessions which was due to pressure put on by the police. I'm very shocked to be standing here today. Okay, so we mentioned a confession. Now he's saying the confessions were false. He was pressured into making them by police. He argued that he lied and was coached into making false confessions. He said he wasn't at the gang pad on the night of the murder and denied having anything to do with it. You know, it's easy to say, well, he's got to be full of shit you know why would he make a false confession who does that mm -hmm. unfortunately there's a lot of false confessions out there well 10 years ago i probably would have been in that camp but having done the research that you and i have done you know seeing all the different documentaries and the shows with cases about false confessions it happens a lot more than we ever thought it did not saying what he's saying here is correct. No. But we know it can happen. Yeah, I don't think you can dismiss it just out of hand. Right. Like I probably would have years ago. Exactly. Because my thing was always, you know, what you just said. Who in the world would confess to a murder that they didn't commit? But then you think about, you know, being in an interrogation room for... 14, 16 hours being deprived of food, water, in some cases, it getting physical. Yeah. And then you could see how at a certain point, a person might say just about anything to get out of that situation. During the trial, Fawcett claimed he was offered a safe house, tattoo removal, and a cash reward if he helped lead the police to the killer. So this guy was first interviewed in January 2009. 
he admitted he was involved in taxing sex workers, but he said he didn't know anything about Mallory's murder. He was interviewed five times as a suspect between August 2009 and March 2012. He confessed in August 2009, but recanted a month later and said another gang member killed Mallory. Well, no wonder he was scared. He did snitch. He fingered another gang member. Yeah. And that typically wouldn't end well for somebody. Per the New Zealand Herald, he told the police, it just feels like it's so easy for the mob to get me. It's just been really hard on me for the last few weeks. The mob can kill me anytime. Well, we did say it was the largest gang in New Zealand. They had members everywhere, including prisons and jail. Oh, absolutely. So my thought is if they wanted to get to him, they could. He said he never hit Mallory. When asked why he lied, he answered, I just felt that if I put myself in there, then maybe I can just stay away from the rest of the mongrel mob. So it is very confusing, right? Because number one, he's interviewed like five times over three years. Right. Confesses very early on, then recants, and then says, uh, you know, another gang member did it, says he was at the pad, then says he wasn't at the pad. In later interviews, he said he came to the gang pad and saw that Mallory was already dead. He claimed he was not involved in dumping her body in the river. And so I I do think this is the problem that you have with Maha Fawcett, and we say it all the time. If you tell four, five, six, seven different stories, you don't make yourself look good. You lose a lot of credibility, and the police are going to think that you're doing that because you had a, a part in it. You were responsible. Yeah, it looks like you're trying to cover up something. Exactly. The jury heard that Mallory used a variety of drugs in the days and hours leading up to her murder. She had cannabis, methadone, morphine, diazepam, and possibly temazepam in her system. However, forensic scientists could not determine how affected she was by the drugs when she died. Okay, I've heard of all of those except for temazepam. I'm assuming it's similar in some way to diazepam because it ends in Pam, but I never heard of that one. But it is a lot of drugs. It is. And I think some of those just on their own, you know, are pretty strong. But if you mix them all at the same time, then you're looking at pretty serious effects, I would think. Pretty potent. I mean, we know why she was taking the methadone. Yes. A woman whose name was suppressed testified the mongrel mob were all over. Manchester Street and Christchurch on the night of December 18, 2008. Gang members approached her after she met with a client and demanded $20 as a tax. They said they owned the street and she owed them $20 per client. She also testified that a sex worker named Holly, who associated with the mongrel mob, pulled up beside her in a dark car with tinted windows and told her to get in. The witness refused, saying, I thought if I got in the car, no one would see me again. She might be right. I would say that's a pretty good assumption. She also testified she met the mob guys four months before Mallory was killed and knew Fawcett by his gang name, Muckdog. An anonymous witness who sold drugs to Mallory described hearing a blood-curdling scream coming from the direction of the gang pad 
on the night of the murder. He said he had known Mallory since 2006. He provided her with drugs, mostly morphine, until December 2008. He and his partner lived about 50 meters from the Galbraith Avenue property. They heard a scream between 10 p.m. and midnight on December 18th. It only lasted a few seconds, and it sounded like a woman was being attacked. When asked if he did anything about it, the witness said, no, it wasn't anything unusual for the area. Makes you wonder, was that before they turned up the music really loud, or was the scream just that loud? That it was louder than the music that they had playing. Well, and it also makes me think if this is not unusual for the area, maybe I need to relocate to a different area. Yeah, sounds like uh, this must be happening pretty frequently. Although, based on what he was into, that might have been his area of choice. Where yeah, maybe it was good business, you mean? Where most of his clients may have lived or, or something like that. On March 3rd, 2014, Fawcett told the judge that he would not take the stand and would not call any witnesses, right? doesn't sound like much of a defense. I understand him not taking the stand and I guess maybe he doesn't have any defense witnesses to call. Again, I I think that's part of the problem when you represent yourself. Well, I kind of had this thought that He's got to be on the outs with the gang, right? By the time that this trial is taking place, he has said some things, tried to incriminate at least one gang member. So how's he going to call any one of the gang members to vouch for him? They're probably not going to do it. I don't know who else he would have thought to have called to the stand, maybe. Well, that's who he's been running with for a long period of time. Yeah, there is nobody worth calling. A former mob member was recalled to court to be cross-examined by Fawcett. Fawcett told the judge he wasn't happy with how his assistant counsel cross-examined the witness, and he wanted the witness recalled, saying, my life is on the line and in this witness's hands, and he's coming in and accusing me of this. I did not say that to this witness. Earlier, the witness testified that Fawcett told him he was at the gang pad when Mallory was killed, and that he stabbed her once. Fawcett denied making this confession. When recalled, the witness testified that Fawcett did make a confession and that Fawcett showed him court paperwork that supported his story. The witness said, per the New Zealand Herald, you also told me your life was on the line with the mongrel mob. You were fearing for your own life what they would do to you. What did I tell you back then? Give them up. Fawcett responded, if I knew who it was, I would have put them up there all right. I've got nothing to gain from the mongrel mob. The witness stuck to his claims and told the court that on the day Mallory was found, they had a meeting at the mob house. Fawcett freaked out, stole a car, and disappeared. So that may have backfired on him a little bit. I think it majorly backfired. He wasn't happy with the way that his assistant counsel had done the cross-examination. But, you know, sometimes there's a reason you don't ask certain questions. And it's because maybe you, you may not know the answer and you're fearful that the answer is not going to be good for you. Yeah, or you can read between the lines and see where it's headed. During closing arguments, the prosecution alleged that 
It took less than 20 minutes for the mongrel mob to pick Mallory up and drive her to the gang pad where she was attacked and murdered. They told the jury that Fawcett was supposed to kill Mallory because of her alleged dead, but he couldn't go through with it. During his interviews, Fawcett said he was present while others killed Mallory. In one interview, he said he closed his eyes and hit her with a metal pole. So I mentioned it, right? He was interviewed like five times over three years. He said a lot of things in those interviews, much of which was incredibly incriminating. Yeah, not good for him. And so it was kind of strange to me that he told the judge, I don't know why I'm standing up here. I think you're standing up here because you said all of this stuff. Now, whether you were pressured to say it, that's another matter. During his closing argument, Fawcett called the prosecution's theory impossible. He told the court, I stupidly implicated myself into a serious crime. I lied. People lie for many things, but I did not take part in this lady's death. It's a big lie if you lied. And to me, it doesn't make sense why you would lie about something like that. Yeah, this is not, I didn't eat the last cookie lie. This is, I was part of a woman's death lie. He tried to discredit the prosecution's timeline. Investigators believe Mallory was picked up at 1043 PM. According to the police, it would have taken six minutes to drive to the gang pad. Mallory was probably dumped in the river around 1059, according to the prosecution, which meant the gang only had about 10 minutes to rape and kill Mallory. And Gibbs, I'll say this, it's kind of disturbing to try to analyze how long it would have taken to rape and kill this woman. But obviously you have to do it as part of this case. Sure. 10 minutes is not a lot of time. But it it could happen. Yes. Fawcett said that he was never at the gang pad and the prosecution's argument was just a made up theory. Finally, he said about the unknown DNA profile known as male B I've described other patched members who seriously assaulted Miss Manning. I'm wanted by the mongrel mob. I'll never protect male B. I've got nothing to gain from it. On March 10th, 2014, Maha Fawcett was found guilty of the murder of Mallory Manning. That day, the police confirmed the investigation was still open. Other members of the mongrel mob were named during trial, but their names were suppressed from the media. So they find Fawcett guilty, but they're not done. Yeah, they're saying, let's get these other guys. Right. They believe other people were involved. They're going to go after them. Detective Inspector Greg Williams said, they were continuing to gather evidence related to the individual's name during the trial. They still did not have a match, a DNA match, but investigators believed male B was closely associated with the Christchurch mongrel mob or the wider mongrel mob. Detective Inspector Williams noted that a main issue with the investigation was the fact that the individuals involved were gangsters and sex workers, two groups of people who are typically reluctant to speak to the police. Well, that's true, right? That is true. They're not going to want to just run to the police and give them all this information. 
Now, I understand why gang members, gangsters wouldn't want to talk to the police. If sex work is legal in New Zealand, though, I'm not exactly sure why sex workers would be as reluctant. They are over here because technically they're doing something that is illegal. On April 30th, 2014, Maha Fawcett was sentenced to life in jail with a minimum non-parole period of 20 years. His assistant counsel argued that he played a minor role in the murder and senior gang members were the ones who organized the hit on Mellory. Gang prospects would do what they were told to do. Which is true in a lot of gangs, gang initiations. I would think in a lot of scenarios, yes, that is true. But even if he played a minor role in the murder, that would still mean he played a role in the murder. During sentencing, a judge noted that Fawcett started smoking marijuana at age eight and using meth at age 14, a year after his father died. Okay, pretty young. Smoking weed at eight and graduated to meth at 14. Not good. Outside court, Mellory's former partner, Kent Gorey, said he would not be happy until the rest of the gang members were charged. He told the media that He could name them, but he wouldn't. He also said he knew Fawcett growing up. He described him as a wannabe who wanted to fit in with anyone. So even Kent was afraid to say the names because he knew they would probably come after him. Yeah, I think if you knew who it was, you'd have to be afraid because of the gang's reach. Now, I don't even think I would tell the media that I could name them. I, I wouldn't either. Because I think you're putting a, somewhat of a target on your back just by saying that. Fawcett filed an appeal in May 2014. In August 2015, Detective Senior Sergeant Brian Archer told the New Zealand Herald that their investigation was hampered by the appeal, which was not scheduled to be heard until February 2016. On August 6, 2017, Fawcett's conviction was quashed by the Court of Appeal, and a retrial was ordered. That's a major hit to the prosecution. Yeah, we don't have all the details, but obviously the Court of Appeal did not believe that based on the trial record, he should have been convicted. On October 25th, 2021, the murder charge against Maha Fawcett was dismissed after the court found that his confessions were inadmissible. Fawcett was granted a retrial for two main reasons, which were not disclosed in 2021. First, the court ruled that his assistant counsel put forth defenses that were inconsistent with Fawcett's blanket denial of his involvement, according to the news outlet NZ Stuff. Fawcett's confession was not admissible because He meets the criteria for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and has a low IQ. This information was not presented to the high court at trial. Experts found that his IQ is in the low to normal range, but test results show extreme variability of function. He also has weak verbal reasoning skills and memory deficits, and he's prone to lie to fill memory gaps. He has also been labeled a very suggestible person. Well, this is definitely a huge problem in this case. Well, I think we're now starting to maybe get to the root of 
why they were able to get him to say certain things. You know, if that is what happened, as he has claimed, I think a person with a low IQ who's very suggestible and is prone to lie to fill memory gaps is the type of person that could possibly make a false confession or a series of false confessions. And that same person shouldn't be representing himself during his murder trial. No, absolutely not. But does it even speak to, you know, his level of understanding that he even thought that was a good idea to represent himself? His lawyer, Chris Stevenson, told the court that the police had indications Fawcett was cognitively impaired and did not look into it at the beginning. Fawcett declined to make a comment to the press after his court hearing, but his lawyer said, per the New Zealand Herald, Mr. Fawcett always maintained that he had nothing to do with the really terrible and tragic killing of Mallory Manning. His trial miscarried, and he had around a decade of his life taken away from him, including years in jail. So he's just incredibly relieved and happy now it's over that the high court judge has dismissed the case. He said to me, I can finally sleep. 15 years later, male B has still not been identified. In the fall of 2023, it was reported that New Zealand investigators would use forensic genetic genealogy to try to solve two high-profile murder cases, one of which was the murder of Mallory Manning. Now, in the reporting, it called forensic genetic genealogy a controversial investigative tool, but it didn't elaborate. So I wasn't sure what was so controversial about it Now, there has been, and maybe this is what they're talking about, controversy surrounding privacy. Yeah, obtaining that information. Obtaining that information. But other than that, I I don't know what would be controversial about it. I think it's a great tool. Now, I understand not everybody wants their DNA to be used willy-nilly. But my understanding is a lot of that has been shut down, I thought, at least here in the, in the state. So yeah, I'm not sure how it is elsewhere. In December of 2023, the privacy commissioner asked the police to pause further use until there is legislative reform. And so maybe that does speak to maybe they still have some issues with privacy over here. Maybe we do here as well that I'm just not thinking about, but I thought they had closed a lot of that down, making it more voluntary as opposed to agencies just being able to go to Ancestry.com or 23andMe and and look through everything. Yeah, I think when you go to one of those sites and do your DNA testing, one of the questions is, will you allow or do, do you want this to be part of that? Yeah. Yes or no, and then at that point, they're allowed it. But I get it. For for many, it still may be controversial in, in that respect, but it has been a very useful tool. Absolutely. In, in solving a number of cases. Probably critical for this one. I think this is a perfect example of a case that could definitely benefit from forensic genetic genealogy. I mean, you're still relying on even finding a family member in in one of the databases, but 
I do think if investigators are finally allowed to use it, it's very possible that Mallory's murder could finally be solved. Yeah, I hope it is. But, you know, as we wrap this one up, this one, man, it just floored me because you have this woman murdered, not just murdered. I mean, she was raped and and beaten. It it was a, a really gruesome attack. Right. And then police really zero in right on this faucet guy imagine being interviewed over like six years multiple times over six years kind kind of hard not to think that they uh they have their eye on you yeah but also when you confess early on well you're gonna put that on that radar on yes now the question is was he pressured to confess or was his iq low enough Or did he have some issues that kind of made him not understand or, or try to fill in the gaps to help police? You know, it doesn't always have to be like a coercive situation. You can have people who think they're trying to help the police, but are actually hurting themselves at the same time. Yeah. Cause he had information, you know, about what happened. Mm -hmm. He was part of the gang. Yeah. It just. According to him, it wasn't him that did it. He was there, but it wasn't him that did all this stuff. But he did say he did it at certain points. So we just don't know exactly how that confession went down. But during the whole thing, what bothered me was the unidentified semen. Right. Now, does that in and of itself mean that he couldn't have been involved? And I would say, no, you could have multiple people involved in the rape. Sure. You could have had some wearing condoms, some not wearing condoms. I mean, I don't want to get graphic, but you could have a number of different scenarios. I mean, I think you might be able to prove who raped her. Will you be able to prove who killed her? I don't know. I think once you can lock down on who raped her, you can use that as leverage to find out who the killer was. Yeah. And that's maybe how it will ultimately go down, but we'll have to keep an eye on it, but that's it for our episode on Mallory Manning. We've got some voicemails, Gibbs. You want to check those out? Yeah. Let's hear them. Hey, Mike and Tarantino. Giddy. Listen, fellas, I want to let you guys know that I commend you on your podcast. It is amazing the way that you guys elaborate. This is Kyle out of Spokane, by the way. But the way that you guys have gone from the beginning to the end, you guys have done such an amazing job. It's only certain people can <clears throat> touch notes like that. And you really chime on them. So I just want to say that from where you started and where you are now, you guys have come a long way. And I appreciate you. So, hey. Shout out to T-Cat. All right. Appreciate the voicemail. Appreciate the, the nice words. Yeah. It means a lot to it us. It really does. Thank you, man. He called you Tarantino? He knows. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Gibby. It's Rhonda from Arthur Washington again. I know I left a message last night, but um, now I'm laughing because I'm listening to the Alvin Mapplebox episode, and you were saying that you've been to Washington and that, you know, isn't Mount Hood in Washington? No, Mount Hood is in Oregon. 
Mount Rainier, which is much bigger. We can see Mount Rainier from that's in Washington. Mount Adams, which is the one I live next to, and Mount St. Helens. But Mount Hood is the one right in our backyard in the Oregon side. So we live in the gorge, so it's like a winter or like a outdoor playland. So, um, but anyways. I just got a good chuckle at that one again. I know I can always count on you guys for a great laugh. Love you guys. Keep your own time picking. Bye. Hey, our mountain's bigger than your mountain. <laughs> you know what uh, you can always count on is that we will mess something up. That oh, is for sure a given. My knowledge of Northwest geography yeah. is absolutely atrocious. I've never been anywhere up there. I've never been... Um, oh, except for, I guess I've been to Oregon. Then if I went up Mount Hood, right? Yeah, I guess but I did. was I was little. Yeah, and so I'm as an adult, I've never been to the Northwest. I think your geography probably sucks all the way around. Oh, actually, I went to Seattle one time. You don't even know. <laughs> you don't even remember where you've been. But I, I was younger then too. Oh my god, you, I did go to the fish market. <laughs> I remember because they were throwing the fish. Oh, this is awesome. Wow. I need to spend more time in the Northwest. Yeah. Well, you definitely don't know your mountains. I definitely don't know my mountains yeah. at all. But uh, we know where the big ones are. Yeah, that is true. But uh, yeah, we are not going to get everything right. That is for sure. At least she's having fun. She's down in that playland, the gorge. Are you familiar with this gorge? I'm familiar with gorges. Just gorges in general? Yeah, there's a gorge over here, over there, you know, and that's a lot of fun when you're in the gorge. You remember Gorgeous George? Well, that's a different gorge. All right, buddy, on that note, we got to get out of here. That right. is it for another episode of True Crime All the Time Unsolved. So for Mike, and Gibby. stay safe and keep your own time ticking. on to your jingle bells pluto tv has all your holiday favorites for free enjoy our season's greetings category with nine holiday channels including holiday movie favorites by lifetime festive fireplace holiday lights and hallmark movies and more download the pluto tv app on all your favorite devices and start streaming holiday favorites on live channels and on demand with thousands of free movies and tv shows pluto tv is your home for the holidays pluto tv stream now pay never